Welcome to the show, and we welcome to the show Felicia Cornblue. She is a professor of history and gender, sexuality and women's studies at the University of Vermont, and she has a new book that we want you to know about, the title of which is A Woman's Life is a Human Life. A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Justice to, from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Uh, I wanted to begin by asking you, and thank you so much for being with us, uh, Felicia Cornblue, the title, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. It's really two questions. Where is that title? What, it is, what is it derivative of? And the subtitle, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. I want to ask you about the difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Let's start with a woman's life as a human life. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. And the title that I'm really glad you called attention to, it comes from a slogan that was a slogan of the, of the movement that I'm writing about and the time that I'm writing about, which is the 70s and 80s, the time right before the Roe versus Wade decision came down from the Supreme Court in 1973, and then the time afterwards when activists actually were still in the field and still working very, very hard for what they were coming to understand as reproductive freedom or reproductive justice. And they, they came up with that slogan, a woman's life is a human life, in the context of the Reagan administration in the 80s and the push for what was then called a human life amendment to the Constitution that would give embryos or fetuses that were gestating the same rights of adults, already born humans, including the people who were, who were carrying them. And um, I think today, you know, today there's, there's a fair chance that the current Supreme Court will enshrine those kinds of so-called fetal rights, fetal personhood rights, you know, without even needing to rewrite the Constitution. They'll just find those rights somehow in the current Constitution. But in the 80s, the, the anti-abortion movement thought that they were going to have to rewrite the Constitution in order to make that happen. And so reproductive rights activists wanted to insist that, you know, the life of the person who is carrying that, that embryonic life <laughs> um, was, was just as important and actually more important in their view. So, and then the other thing about um, reproductive rights and reproductive justice, um, I use those terms the way people at the time have used them, that when we're talking about reproductive rights, we're really talking about the right to not have a child. So whether that's access to contraception, which used to be very, very controversial in the U.S. and might be again, or the right to access abortion care. And then reproductive justice is a term that's been used really since the 1990s and the early 2000s, to talk about a wider political agenda that's informed by the question, what would be required? What would, what would we have to make possible for folks so that people could make decisions about to have children, about when they can have children, not just when they cannot have children? You know, what would it take to really enable people to make um, genuinely free and independent choices about everything having to do with their reproduction and their childbearing. So reproductive justice includes significantly the fight, the battle against forced sterilization, for example? 
Yes. So the story that I story that I tell going back to the 1970s is a story where activists they first discovered the scandal of what was called forced or coerced um, a sterilization or sterilization abuse, as they put it. And that was actually surprisingly common in the U.S. And a lot of a lot of white people didn't know about it, white middle-class people, including white middle-class feminists, because it wasn't happening to them for the most part. But it was happening uh, on the island of Puerto Rico. It was happening to Puerto Ricans and Mexican-Americans uh, or people of Mexican origin uh, on the U.S. mainland. It was happening in Indian Health Service clinics that were serving people who lived on reservation. Um, and it was happening to some white working-class people, um, young people, who were being pressured by their doctors, their social workers, et cetera, to have sterilization surgeries. And that's the most literal sense, right, in which somebody could be denied the right to have a kid, right? If if somebody either um, gives you a sterilization without even getting your consent or in a slightly more ambiguous case, if they pressure you into having a sterilization by threatening that, you know, you're going to lose your welfare benefits or um, you're not going to get good medical care if you don't agree to this particular procedure. You know, your doctor's not going to take care of you. Um, those things were really happening. And that's the most literal way in which somebody could be deprived of their right to have children. And the people that I'm writing about sort of started there, started fighting against sterilization abuse. And then as the 70s continue into the 1980s, they come to realize that if people are really going to have the opportunity to choose what kind of families they, they want to have, then they're going to need much more than just being free from sterilization abuse. You know, they're going to need economic security of a kind. They're going to need to be free from police violence. They're going to need access to decent health care, not just reproductive health care, but all kinds of health care, you know, because if your kids don't have health care, then how can you really be choosing to have kids and have families? So they started to develop a broad agenda from that starting point and that insight that people need the right to have kids as well as the right to not have kids. Felicia Cornblue, in, in your book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, you write about the confluence of racism and misogyny and forced sterilization. You have some really disturbing passages with regard to women who are uh, seeking an abortion, and as long as they're there, the doctors say, well, you're obviously too young, incompetent, you shouldn't have children, so while you're here, we'll give you a, we'll, we'll sterilize you. Um, not in those words, but in effect, what they're asking for permission to do on the backside of the form. And you use a term that I had not heard before, so excuse my ignorance, Mississippi appendectomy. Can you explain that? That was a term that was used very commonly in the black civil rights movement in the South. And, you know, we don't usually think about the the freedom movement in the South as being a movement around health care or a movement around reproductive rights. But when you dig into the history, you see that these movements are actually all tied together. It's really it's really the same cloth. And people like Fannie Lou Hamer that folks might have heard of, who is one of the most outstanding activists to come out of the out of the black movement in the Deep South, said for many years that the reason that she was drawn into political work was because she went into the hospital for one procedure for sort of a benign growth, 
and without her consent, uh, she was sterilized when she was there. And she said that, it, you know, she knew that it wasn't just happening to her in Mississippi, that it was happening to many, many other women. And it was so common that it, it got this kind of term, um, the Mississippi appendectomy. You know, you go in for one procedure and you come out with something else. You come out unable to have children for the rest of your life. And those were decisions that were made by, you know, racist doctors and to some degree by social welfare professionals, um, if I can call them professionals, who had ideas about who should be having kids and who shouldn't be having kids. The term you used just a few moments ago, uh, fetal personhood or fetal personhood rights, I think that since the Supreme Court reversed Roe last year, many people think, well, the Supreme Court can't do any more harm. That's completely wrong. And the fight, the legal fight over fetal personhood or fetal personhood rights is one aspect of this uh, story and a way in which the Supreme Court can destroy uh, uh rights to abortion that are now enshrined in state constitutions and state laws. The Supreme Court and this, I think, really right-wing, anti-choice, anti-feminist, anti-women, anti-abortion agenda that it has, I think, can do an enormous amount of damage still. I'd appreciate if you would explain why and how. The Supreme Court can still do a lot of damage. Um, and I'm afraid that that people who care about reproductive rights and justice may still be kind of playing catch up or, you know, coming very well prepared to the last war, the last battle. Um, because I, I do think that even, the, you know, for years, there's been sort of a, a philosophical or pseudo philosophical position on the anti-abortion right that this is really all about states' rights and, you know, local autonomy and democracy and so on. And there are all kinds of ways in which that was and is a hypocritical position in itself. You know, they're saying it's about democracy, and meanwhile, they're gerrymandering the district and preventing people from vote. What kind of democracy is that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even taking it on their terms, um, what, we, what we've seen recently, very much like the story that I tell about the 60s and 70s, is that there's been enormous grassroots energy and incredibly effective, smart, flexible organizing going on at the state and local level. And, you know, guess what? Um, reproductive rights have won. Overwhelmingly, they've won, and the movement has won. And the, the anti-abortion right wing is not satisfied with that. So it turns out they're, once again, their apparent philosophical commitment to local autonomy and representative democracy and all that stuff um, it's really not true. And uh, they are prepared. There certainly are advocates, and there, I would say there are at least three votes, four votes on the U.S. Supreme Court for this already to, um, to throw away the idea of local autonomy and representative democracy and for the Supreme Court itself to say that embryos or fetuses from the point of conception have... Uh, constitutionally protected rights under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was, of course, created to establish black civil rights and, you know, more recently has been held to cover 
women's rights and rights of people in same-sex relationships. Um, they want to turn that into a charter of fetal rights against the majority because, you know, the majority doesn't agree with them. Right, because... So, because we be- need to fight, yep. Because the Supreme Court can say, well, a fertilized human egg is a person, and if you uh, have an abortion that kills the person, and that is murder. And all sorts of legal uh, effects flow from that kind of analysis. Let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, we're going to uh, take a break in just a minute. I like our listeners to be able to hear what a book sounds like. And for those of you just joining us, we are speaking with Felicia Cornblue, whose new book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life. You do, of course, talk about Roe versus Wade. And perhaps you could read for us. There's a chapter titled To the Supreme Court. Maybe you could read the first couple paragraphs of that so our listeners can both hear what the book sounds like and, well, learn something. I think they'll be surprised to hear. Yeah, I'm happy to. On December 13th, 1971, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments in the case Roe versus Wade and began to consider whether state laws criminalizing abortion violated the Constitution. Just as Harry Blackman quietly scribbled notes, a near-constant habit, as the attorneys began their presentations, at 10.08 a.m., Sarah Weddington, four years out of the University of Texas at Austin Law School, stood to make her case against her state's anti-abortion law. Blackman judged her performance a C+. He also noted the feminist advocate's, quote, blonde hair, and found her, quote, rather pretty, comma, plump. Weddington deserved a better grade, but it wasn't her arguments or her looks that got Justice Blackman to conclude, with a lopsided majority of his brethren, that the laws at issue did indeed violate the Constitution. Thirteen months after Weddington's star turn, the Supreme Court invalidated the abortion laws of 46 states and recognized, incompletely but remarkably, what pregnancy and parenting mean to people who experience them. The historic rulings in this case and its companion, Doe versus Bolton, were products of the work of the same activist movement that had produced the historic change in New York's law. And that's the other big story I tell in the book, The New York Campaign. Which we will talk about on the other side of this break. We'll also find out why did it take the Supreme Court 13 months to make the decision, something that also gets lost in the telling of this history. We'll be right back. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your This is Bill Newman, WHMP. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
your big day is almost here. After personalizing 160 invitations, selecting custom floral arrangements, designing a drop-dead gorgeous wedding dress, and a gazillion other not-so-small details, you can rest assured that you've chosen the perfect destination. The Roosevelt Room at Union Station, one of New England's most unique wedding banquet facilities. The finest food and services available for a once-in-a-lifetime celebration, second to none. The Roosevelt Room at Union Station, downtown Northampton. You go, girl. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliotis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer-making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangerPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. Push! Push! Come on! One more! Let's go! 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 Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria, bread euphoria, bakery and cafe. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Felicia Cornblue. She is the author of the new book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Justice, Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. I would like to go back to where we were before the break, if I might, and ask you, why did it take the Supreme Court 13 months from the time of the argument to the time of decision? What was happening in that period of time with regard to Roe versus Wade? Well, it's important to remember that things were really combustible in American politics in the early 70s in general. Um, and, you know, we think of the 60s as the activist time and the 70s as something else. Um, but actually the 70s were a very activist and combustible time. And uh, so first of all, the court was was understaffed. You know, there were empty seats um, on the Supreme Court bench because President Nixon had tried to push through these two arch segregationists, and they were massively protested by people in the movement, the women's movement and the black civil rights movement, and, um, and Nixon couldn't get his appointees on the bench. So that was going on. And there were, uh, and so there was, you know, there were, there were 
fights and political conversations going on around the court, um, and there were uh, there were retirements, and so Justice Justice Blackman, who had been assigned the job of writing this opinion, um, he actually knew it was going to be controversial. I mean, this is another thing that I think is a big myth. The idea that that Roe versus Wade was not controversial at the time and that the court never anticipated that it was going to be such a big fight. That's absolutely untrue. He knew it was going to be controversial and it was going to be explosive. And he wanted to have nine justices present to make this decision, um, especially once he started to lean in the, you know, pro-privacy rights, pro-abortion access direction. Um, And the other thing is that on the ground, the politics of abortion access were were changing very, very fast. So I chronicle what happened in New York, which was the most important state in terms of uh, the changing law. And in New York, the action was mostly in the legislature. It wasn't in the courts. And the legislature had changed the law and liberalized it dramatically um, without a residency requirement. So New Yorkers could suddenly, as of July 1970, could get uh, legal and safe abortions but so could everybody else in the U.S. if they could make it to New York. And New York State right? was the so first I, the first state to liberalize uh, its abortion laws, to make abortion available. It was followed, as you point out in your book, by Alaska, Hawaii, California, and other states. But it also remained illegal in and criminal in most states in the country before Roe versus Wade was decided. In the 13 months yeah. between the argument and the decision, what happened? in terms of the Supreme Court itself? Well, the Supreme Court, in the in the person of Justice Blackmun, uh, went to work on learning about what was happening on the ground and studying the history and the legal history as well as the political history of abortion in the U.S. You know, Blackmun discovered, and I think he taught the other members of the court, that uh, before the 19th century, abortion was not criminalized in the United States. It was it was regulated under the common law, the law that we inherited from England, but there was no legislation, and it was not it was not a, a crime under the under the legislation of any state. And in yeah. fact, before you know, before about the two thirds point of a pregnancy, even under the common law. Um, it really wasn't problematic. Right. So well, what was called quickening. And, and interesting to me, in, exactly. Do- in Dobbs, the Supreme Court lies about the history. It says abortion was always illegal. And in fact, at the time, the founding of the country, abortion was common and was, in fact, not criminal. And although the Supreme Court exactly. cites one historian who says to the contrary, the overwhelming historical record is that the Supreme Court in Dobbs bases its decision on something that is historically not in not only inaccurate, it's something that they know is false. But, you know, find someone who supports your decision and you can cite it, and they did. And it's really just a horrifyingly dishonest opinion in Dobbs, the decision that overruled Roe versus Wade. I, I'd like to point out on the things you do in your book that one thing that happens between the argument and the decision is that the Supreme Court conf- has confirmation of the justices so that there is a full complement of justices, nine justices at the time that Roe versus Wade just decided seven to two in favor of the constitutional right for abortion. I I would like to ask you your your judgment on this. The Supreme Court in Dobbs returns essentially, it says it does, I'm not sure this is true either, but it says we're returning the decisions with regard to reproductive freedom uh, to the states. 
reproductive rights. The states can decide. There's predominantly male white legislatures will decide whether women can have an abortion. That's where the right should reside with the state legislature. I think it's a horrifying decision, but that's what the Supreme Court says. You point out, and you write extensively in your book about this, Felicia Cornblue, about what it was like when one state, uh, and then a couple of others, but not easily accessible to most people, states had the right to uh, an abortion, but others didn't. A uh, place in history that we may be revisiting now, and certainly more in the next year or two or three. Can you tell us how it worked or did it work when it was the procedure was generally unavailable, but there was an oasis of reproductive reproductive rights in the country? Yeah, I think we really need to learn from what happened in the 70s. So New York liberalizes, it, liberalizes its law and says basically – a pregnant person can make their own decisions through 24 weeks of a pregnancy. And that is, that's kind of an amended version of a law that my own mother um, wrote the first draft of um, as a, as an activist with the national organization for women. Um, So it's an extraordinary thing at the time. And it's especially extraordinary because there's no residence requirement, right? People come from all over the country and the world to New York. So it's a double thing, right? On the one hand, um, it's a huge departure and a very meaningful departure. And I think in those days, the Supreme Court was really bothered by the fact that people who were in New York or people who could get to New York with the financial means suddenly had access to this and people elsewhere didn't. Right. Um, however, it was always, you know, com- it was always completely inadequate. So even when you look at the abortion referral networks, in that period, you know, there were all these different networks that were helping people get to states or to doctors where they could have safe procedures. And then after New York opens up, you know, helping them get to New York. And, um, you know, I have oral history testimony of a woman in Florida who said, I can't go to New York. You know, I don't know anybody in New York. I, you know, how could I even do that? And she winds up having an illegal, unsafe abortion and dying. And, you know, I think we haven't we haven't yet heard a lot of those horror stories, but it's because they're below the radar and people are not going to talk about it if they're breaking the law or they think they might be breaking the law. Right. And we have to understand, the, you know, especially folks who are in um, states that do have open abortion laws. You know, yes, of course, we got to keep our doors open and help people get um, to states where they can have safe and legal procedures. But we also have to understand that this is no kind of solution and it never will be. We've been speaking with Felicia Cornblue. Her new book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. It's a really interesting history. We've only touched on it in our conversation this morning. I did have marked in the book a really interesting passage about a person who the world knows as uh, Betty Friedan. And I'm wondering if you could Tell us that story. Well, let me, let me just read it, and I'd appreciate your final comments with regard to this. You talk about a woman who at birth in Peoria, Illinois, was born as Betty Goldstein, and her father was an immigrant from Ukraine. And you go on and tell her story and have this, these two sentences. They attended a reform, her family, Jewish synagogue, and celebrated Christmas. Betty Goldstein dropped the E, she spelled her name B-E-T-T-Y-E, 
in her first name upon graduation from elite, waspy, intellectually serious Smith College, and then took the name of her husband upon marriage. There was movement in the leadership of the pro-choice movement, uh, and there was intellectual and political development And I'm wondering if you could perhaps conclude our conversation by giving your thoughts about how the movement itself evolved. Well, first about about the woman we know as Betty Friedan. Um, I think that um, uh, Smith College should be very proud (laughs) to have to have trained her. She was a you know brilliant woman and incredibly uh, an incredibly great writer. the book and being, of course, The Feminine very, Mystique, which was a powerful and important nine, book. 1963. And she was the uh, the co-founder of the National Organization for Women. And um, the National Organization for Women, when it starts, is a movement for women's civil rights. And they they really want to fashion themselves after the NAACP, you know, the group that won black civil rights in the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. And so they weren't a perfect organization, and, and Friedan certainly wasn't a perfect person, but they were they were a fighting organization, and they had uh, great ties to the labor movement and to working-class women, and they really wanted to stand for people's rights to earn a living and to participate in politics and to get an education. Um, and they saw abortion rights as integral to that. Um, it was sort of one of the foundations that people needed to have in order to build their economic lives um, and their educational lives and their professional lives. And we're gonna, and yeah, go ahead. No, we're going to have to go. <laughs> I hate to say that, but we do. Um, we have been speaking with Felicia Cornblue. Her book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, available at your local independent bookstore. Uh, Please purchase it there. I want to thank you for the book. I want to thank you for your time. It's a really fascinating and important history and particularly important at this time. Felicia Cornblue, thank you so very, very much. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. It was all on me. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Projections for the total cost of building a new school for K-5 through students at the Fort River School site in Amherst are now below $100 million. The new plans included cost-saving measures and lower-than-anticipated expenses for contingencies and furniture. They were presented to the Town Council, Finance Committee, and Elementary School Building Committee Monday night with a new estimated cost of $97.97 million dollars. The town share is approximately $55.27 million for the 105,000-square-foot building that is scheduled to open in the fall of 2026. A Vermont man is facing drug trafficking charges after he was pulled over on January 16th on Route 91 in Greenfield. Massachusetts State Police found two 9mm handguns, 113 grams of suspected cocaine, 1,650 packages of heroin, and two measuring scales. The driver, 32-year-old Richard Meinzer of Killington, had his bail set at $25,000. There were two minors in the vehicle who were also arrested and charged with drug trafficking and illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition. And Tuesday night's winning Mega Millions ticket was sold right here in Western Mass. 
The $31 million Mega Millions jackpot ticket was sold at the Stop and Shop in Belchertown. According to the Mass State Lottery, the jackpot comes with a $16.3 million cash option. There is no word on the identity of the winner. Mostly cloudy today. Snow will arrive between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. It'll be steady and heavy at times during the afternoon hours with a high in the low 30s. Snowfall accumulations north of Northampton, 3 to 6 inches. South of Northampton, 2 to 4 inches. The snow mixes with and changes over to rain and sleet tonight. Overnight lows of 28 to 34. Generally a dry day tomorrow with a high in the low 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los funcionarios de salud de Estados Unidos quieren que las vacunas contra el COVID-19 se parezcan más a la vacuna anual contra la gripe. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos propuso el lunes un enfoque simplificado para futuros esfuerzos de vacunación, lo que permite que la mayoría de los adultos y niños reciban una vacuna una vez al año para protegerse contra el virus mutante. Esto significa que los estadounidenses ya no tendrán que hacer un seguimiento de cuántas vacunas han recibido o cuántos meses han pasado desde su último refuerzo. La propuesta surge cuando las vacunas de refuerzo se han vuelto difíciles de vender. Si bien más del 80% de la población de Estados Unidos ha recibido al menos una dosis de vacuna, solo el 16% de los elegibles han recibido los últimos refuerzos autorizados en agosto. La FDA le pedirá a su panel de expertos externos en vacunas que participen en una reunión el jueves. Se espera que la agencia tenga en cuenta sus consejos al decidir los futuros requisitos de vacunas para los fabricantes. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden persuadió a los demócratas en el Congreso para que proporcionaran cientos de miles de millones de dólares para combatir el cambio climático. Ahora viene otra tarea formidable, atraer a los estadounidenses para que compren millones de autos eléctricos, bombas de calor, paneles solares y electrodomésticos más eficientes. Pero también significa que la batalla de la administración contra el calentamiento global se librará un hogar a la vez. Biden reconoció el obstáculo durante una reunión reciente del gabinete cuando habló sobre los incentivos que estarán disponibles este año. Las encuestas muestran que si bien los estadounidenses apoyan las acciones para frenar el cambio climático, en general desconocen la ley de reducción de la inflación, la legislación masiva que incluye incentivos financieros para reducir las emisiones y son escépticos sobre su propio papel en la crisis climática. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome back to the studio Bill Dwight. Bill Dwight is known to most of our listeners, of course, as a former president of the Northampton City Council. He was on the council in two different stints for a total of some 18 or 20 years. I think no one knows Northampton politics or the issues better than Bill Dwight, and we were really pleased that you could join us this morning. Bill, I wanted to hear to ask you your perspective on something that I know you would have had a lot to say about if you were still on the council and probably still have a lot to say even in your role as private citizen. I, and that is the decision, the vote last week by the council to limit the number of marijuana dispensaries, the pot shops here in Northampton. From your perspective, was this a good idea or a bad idea and why? Well, actually, my my... I, I'll start off by saying that I was opposed to this, adamantly opposed to it, and not so much because it was a good idea or a bad idea. I mean, I I think there's room for reasonable debate on that point. Although I think 
it is a bad idea all the way down the line. I don't think it's necessary. My big concern was it was a very poor way to go about crafting a law, and it's a very poor law point in fact, actually. It's, um, it's only two paragraphs. Well, only one paragraph actually sort of states why it exists, which is the, the um, health director had said that there probably should be a high-end cap. That was it. There's no, there, there was nothing else embedded in the ordinance, like data and facts, data that I actually contest, I'll admit. I don't, I don't agree with all that data. I think the other problem was that we've litigated this issue about lifting a prohibition. That's, that's already happened, but you heard all those same arguments being employed. But this was, an, it was a reactionary law built on an emotional response to the proposed uh, weed shop in uh, Florence. And that's where you okay, started so your the, testimony. So the weed now. shop in Florence was a proposal to put a marijuana uh, uh, dispensary, retail yeah. store, uh, on the corner of the main intersection in Correct. Florence. That was and one. people in Florence said, that's a really bad place for a... Well, they said any number of things. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> they, they, were, they were saying, you know, it's a gateway drug. It, it was all the old marijuana arguments uh, with new polish on it but 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 that yes and and point in fact it's actually what you frequently heard people unabashedly saying we don't want this here it's not what we want to be known as and we don't want to you know this doesn't fit into florence or they extended the argument this doesn't fit in northampton we don't want to be known as uh uh pot central or whatever so again it was an issue of perceptions there was no there was no clearly defined threat that and this is in no clearly defined solution. This is not a solution. My argument to them when I went in public comment was that this law does absolutely nothing. If you for real or imagined, if these uh, problems that they identified sort of actually exist or don't, doesn't matter. It does nothing for that. If you if you say that the presence of a certain number of retail shops proves a threat to the developing brains of the youth and you want to send them a message, this doesn't do that. It's not like anyone, never mind people under 21, are monitoring what the council does and trying to parse out the message that's being delivered. It does nothing. It's, it, we're not likely to get any new shops simply because the market is already exhausted. Uh, and saturated, and um, what it does do possibly, and I and it's not irreversible, is it impacts the market, which is weird because we're not allowed. The municipal governments are not allowed to game a market, and in this one instance, because the the cannabis commission has allowed municipalities to do this, they gamed the market, and that was even advanced as one of the arguments to help out the existing retailers. That's that's really kind of that's really a bogus reason to make a law by my reckoning anyway. Let's go back to a couple of things you just said, Bill Dwight. One is that the law doesn't have much explanation in it. That's true. That said, it's not necessary. It's it's uh, gilding the lily in a lot of a lot of times. Legislators or legislatures say whereas this happened and we right. find this to be a fact and based on uh, the following considerations and therefore we enact the following law. But it's not necessary. 
It's not. I think it is on some level because uh, it's not it, legally necessary. No, no, it's not required. It's not required. That's the tough word. I'm yeah, they think required. <laughs> yes, you're right. It's not required. It is necessary, I think, for future council, future councils, um, whoever's charged with enforcing whatever this. I mean, you have to have some definition of enforcement impact. What happens in this case? It wouldn't necessarily be a violation because you couldn't get that far. But um, there, there has to be something more of an explanation than a very ambiguous line. And that's if I if I'm elected to the council six years from now, I will not be. I, let me say that. Uh, <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> had breaking news! Dwight <laughs> Dw- Dw- Dwight announces future race comeback for council. <laughs> Dwight admits he has 20. a problem. <laughs> No, but it was, if I had to come back and or anyone six years from now is reviewing this because the market's going to change, the cannabis commission is going to change their rules. There may be opportunity for smaller venues, uh, uh, consultants, and so on and so forth to be restricted by the prospect of this, and it should be reviewed. And the councils looking at this in the future, going, "What in the hell is this about? What's this for?" Someone said, "Yeah, maybe we should have a cap. That's why we have a cap." Boom. Well, another thing that you just said that is actually uh, joined as part of this debate is that the counselors who favored this and did favor and passed this ordinance six to three uh, say, well, it is important for the council to have taken a position and to said, we think that uh, unregulated and uh, market-determined number of shops in Northampton is a bad idea. It sends the wrong message. And you say no one who this is affect is paying the least attention to the council and what they do or say. Right, right. So you want to... Uh, I mean, there's flesh- a mechanism for that. It's called a resolution. That's exactly... I mean, and the sponsors had said that they wanted to promote a conversation, a discussion. And there is a mechanism. That's precisely what resolutions do. You Without the actual uh, severity of a law, of a, a prescription, uh, a, a, pro, a prohibition, if you will. It, it, it's, there are devices for that. And, and if this conversation were, if people wanted to expand this conversation, you know what, there's actually a committee that was built and designed exactly for this issue. It's the Youth Commission. The Youth Commission was established uh, under Claire Higgins um, when a number of counselors were getting dis- upset and disturbed by the fact that our kids were hanging out downtown. <laughs> our kids who are now in their 30s are hanging out downtown and sitting on benches and, and not doing anything, but hanging out downtown. And they wanted to they wanted to make an ordinance, and they thought they had the right to make the ordinance to do that. And that was insane. And we were making laws about them without them type of thing. And so Claire and I discussed Maybe let's have a youth commission refer these things. The youth, in this case, on the marijuana thing, the youth were invoked more than the word Jesus at a revival meeting. It was, it, this was youth, 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 and never did they go and refer to the youth commission and say, what do you think? Are you prepared to parse out the message that we're trying to transmit to you that we don't want you to do pot? I don't know. I, I, that was a little frustrating, too. And I think these are all kind of um, – by the way, I want to emphasize that I think I have incredible respect and admiration and fondness for the council. 
and for all in the counselors who did this, who sponsored this as well. I just adamantly disagree with the way the process was, the fact that it was even introduced, and then some of the arguments that have been used to support it. But that doesn't mean I hate them or think that they're bad people. I just don't think they did a good job in this case. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the reasons that have been proposed for this ordinance that restrict the number of pot shops in Northampton to it's 12, it's 11, it's 13, but that's around that number. We'll be right back. Is that the Reaper man? That's the Reaper man. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I think he lost his mind. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we want you to know about our new two-hour show, Talk the Talk, where we will indeed talk the talk with authors, activists, and experts. And politicians, musicians, and artists. And filmmakers, reverends, and rabbis. And scientists, lawyers, and doctors. And some funny people, too. Wait, we have funny people, too? Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Weekday mornings from 9 to 11 and again at 4. Starting next Monday on WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Teach English anywhere, to immigrants in the United States, to students in South America. Get your Teach English certificate with the International Language Institute. It's the Teach English credentials recognized around the world. You'll learn how to teach, create an excellent lesson plan, and you'll start teaching non-native English speakers the first week. A three-month part-time evening course starts February 4th. Four-week online intensive starts February 6th. Sign up online. Get your Teach English certificate. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep. Because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic. Not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic. The lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't. But they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow Bay Staters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College, in the sleepy part of town. They say that the one constant in life is change, and while that might be true for most things, one thing that hasn't changed is the great meal and great time you're always going to have at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Stop by six nights a week to dine in, hang at the bar. If you don't want to eat in, there's always Roberto's new online ordering system. Just go to robertosnorthampton.com and you can order, pay, and pick up dinner six nights a week. Roberto's is open every day except Tuesdays, right on Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton. And save 30% on the Shop 30 store. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Com.
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with former president of the Northampton City Council, Bill Dwight. We've been talking about the ordinance passed six to three. That's a supermajority, enough to overcome the mayor's veto, should there be one, uh, with regard to the pot shops and the number of pot shops in Northampton. Bill, the justification for this ordinance is that the number of pot shops in Northampton sends a message to the youth that pot is okay. And in fact, there are studies they point to that the proliferation of pot shops influences the social acceptance of marijuana then the, it leads to an increase in the use and consumption of marijuana, and that's bad for youth. It's a long argument. It has a number of connecting pieces that may or may not fit together. But I'm wondering what you think about that argument. I, you know, the issue of normalization, I think, is the express concern. We don't, we're, and when you try to impart, I mean, it's interesting because as a cohort, adolescents or youth, um, you know, I don't know what it's like to be an African-American in the United States or a woman. I do know what it was like to be a youth, and unfortunately all of us do, and we project our own youths, our own experiences youth, onto the existing youth. And for some reason we continually forget that they have no we, – we, we give them no agency, no capacity to make decisions and choices, good or bad, for themselves. Um, because we don't think that they're mature enough. And this is, you know, this is the same argument that comes up when we talk about giving 16-year-olds the vote. And it's interesting, all the people endorse this. In municipal elections. In municipal elections, yeah. And it's interesting because the three sponsors of this were very much in favor of that. But at the same time, I think we... Say say that again. The sponsors of the... Of of this ordinance... To restrict uh, the number of pot shops. ...were very much in favor of uh, a 16-year-old municipal voting age. Okay. So, um, and and I think they subscribe to those same arguments, that that these are people who are capable of making decisions that, good or bad, um, they are entitled to make because a lot of these rules and regulations affect them. The fact is, is that this message, such as it is, if you want to send a message, it, it helps to be a little more direct instead of this is the equivalent of gaslighting kids who don't even notice and or care. Um, the, I, I tell you, to project my youth onto this, yeah, not the one you think yep. I'm going to talk about, at age 16, I could would if I lived in Northampton, I don't think I would have been paying much attention, sadly, to yes, what the right, Northampton City Council right. does. And where I was living, I had no idea what the city council was doing. That's what the town true. council was and, doing. And and I would actually even take that further and say I'd say about ninety percent of the adults don't either. So <laughs> well, that's a sad that's a sad <laughs> fact. But it, I think it's true. I mean I think that what people understand what it is the council does or doesn't do or whatever really doesn't it doesn't register on most people's daily lives. Why should it really, to be honest? But um, the, I, I, we emerged from prohibitions like the munchkins after the house came down on, on the witch, the wicked witch of the West. We're all hidden. And then when we come out, we come out with an excess of caution. And we did that with marijuana. We certainly did it with liquor. With liquor, it was, you know, we had the blue laws that we were dealing with forever, and we still have these kind of archaic, convoluted rules. 
this happens here with weed as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. You can have a pharmacy within uh, two blocks of a school, but it has Oxycontin in it. But we don't worry about the normalization or the impact on kids. Whereas marijuana, which is, I think, admitted by all parties, that is much more benign than, say, Oxycontin or addic- more addictive and more debilitating drugs that are available, including alcohol and tobacco. So we, we don't – it doesn't make much sense. It's an emotional reaction, which I understand. We did this with the porn stores. Remember, I don't know if we created a really stupid, stupid ordinance that's still in the books about porn stores. It's moot now because no one's going to have a porn store. But that's my big concern is, um, and it really doesn't, and no one else would really care so much. I much prefer we not make reactionary laws that pander to an emotional um, audience. It's bad, bad law. We leave it there. We have been speaking with Bill Dwight, former longtime city councilor, former president of the Northampton City Council. Thanks for coming in and sharing your views with us today, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks for pulling me off the street. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Say I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong. Hey everyone, it's Gordon Oliver. And I'm Tina Marie. And we're popping in to get everyone excited about this week's The Cambridge Connection radio show. Ooh, can't wait to hear who we're speaking with next. And before we share this week's guests, I want to remind everyone that we're here on WHMP every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. to help you, our listeners, navigate life's options, especially when it comes to financial wellness and empowerment. Let's not forget about all the success stories, too. Okay, Tina Marie, you ready? Ready. Ever heard of Credivolve? Well, if you've been turned down for a mortgage, then Credivolve might have your solution. This Saturday at 9.30 a.m. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, Live CDs, and DVDs, and, and puzzles. For Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.